Welcome to Humble Beginnings, a podcast where we uncover the unconventional, more relatable paths to success. In this show, we'll share the stories before the C-suites, board memberships, and appointments, the stories of various upbringings, first jobs, career pivots, educational uncertainties, and more. This is the place to hear about their lives from the GovCon executives themselves. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to an episode of Humble Beginnings, where we talk to GovCon executives about their unconventional paths to success. I'm your host, Amanda Ziede, and our guest today is Kevin Kelly, Chairman and CEO of Arcfield. Thank you so much for being here today, Kevin. Glad to be here, Amanda. Awesome. So we'd like to start this conversation by asking if you can tell us just a bit about yourself, perhaps where you grew up, what your family was like, or what you were like during your formative years. Sure. So at, at a bit of an unusual upbringing, I'm, I'm, I'm a CIA brat. So I was born and raised overseas. Uh, I was born in, in Beirut and then spent some time living in Moscow, Nairobi, and Athens before moving back to the States. It gave me a pretty unique perspective on on life and culture and uh, what it's like to be um, a minority in certain places, what it's like to be in the majority in certain places. And also, I think, helped develop me uh, in the area and some of my social capabilities with the the need to meet new people, introduce myself, make new friends. Uh, also, going through the, the sad goodbyes every two years as we moved from from location to location. So it's a, it's a bit of a unique experience. Um, but but one I think I, I benefited from quite a bit. Wonderful. Well, similarly, my parents were actually born in Lebanon, so my dad was born in Beirut. Yeah. So there's a there's a strong chance, and I and I had a, an employee, a Lebanese um, American employee that worked for me, and there was only a handful of um, hospitals in Beirut, and so it turns out he and I were both born in the same hospital. So wow, small world. Well, yeah. really small country, but yes, <laughs> small world. <laughs> So when did you start high school and, and when did you get into engineering in the STEM field in general? Yeah. Um, so I, I was that kid that took everything apart. Um, as soon as my parents gave me any kind of toy or f- frankly, my father got a new electric razor. One of the first things I did was head for the garage and look for the tools because I wanted to see how it worked. And um, I was I was that kid that grew up playing with blocks and Legos and anything that was construction related. So when I went into high school, um, I was an athlete. I ran track. I wrestled, played baseball, played football. But if I wasn't doing that, I spent most of my time doing things that were mechanical. I always took wood shop, metal shop. I took welding, auto shop, drafting. Uh, anything that that I could uh, keep my hands busy and my and my brain more in the mechanical things. So uh, I started um, after graduating high school here in the Northern Virginia area in Chantilly. Uh, I went off to Penn State and uh, ran track there, as well as um, studied electrical engineering. And I had some choices to make uh, around what form of engineering I was actually interested in: aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, and ended up in electrical. But we can. Uh, we can get into that later. I, I, I might note, though, um, this this idea of the Humble Beginnings podcast, JD and I were discussing just where people come from and what they do. And I mentioned that I, when, when going to school at Chantilly High School, I worked at Fair Oaks Mall and um, ended up um, meeting my then high school girlfriend who eventually became my wife. But uh, I, I worked in a loading dock in uh, at Hex, the store that's no longer there. It's now Macy's. But uh, I unloaded and loaded trucks, and, and in the spare time when there weren't trucks there, I had to clean clean the bathrooms. So uh, pretty <laughs> humble beginning. <laughs> so from cleaning bathrooms and loading docks to Hex to that's CEO. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
Yeah, we love to ask about first jobs, whether it's, you know, during high school, after college, whatever, because the trajectory seems to go any direction. So. Yeah, you know, it's funny that that was my first real job. I started mowing lawns when I was 12 years old, just to, to make extra money. And again, I, I, I always liked working with machines. Um, so it was a good combination, kept me outside and, and everything was paid in cash. When you're a kid, you don't have bank accounts. So it was, uh, it was pretty handy. But my first real job was at Hex. Um, and oddly enough, that department store was run by high school kids after 5 p.m. <laughs> because all the adults went home. And uh, uh, perhaps why it, it eventually sold to Macy's. I don't, I'm not sure, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a fun place to work. It was a nice store, and and uh, and the management that was there was was very friendly and accommodating to uh, to high school kids. But that was a, a good job. You mentioned first jobs coming out of college. Um, I actually worked at GE Aerospace, which became Martin Marietta and Lockheed Martin during the the time period that I worked there. The program that I worked on back in 1993 is part of Arcfield today, so it's kind of a a really special part of, of my career returning to where I started and uh, being able to, to manage this, this enterprise of programs, one of which was the one that I started with uh, in the nineties. So it's uh, it's kind of fun. And a weird full circle situation. Yes. So before we move on um, to your career and, and later education, I'm curious as to what these early career experiences taught you um, and how those lessons still stick with you today, even though the job is probably very different. Yeah, it's, it's, I think later in your career, you take the opportunity to reflect back on some of those earlier positions, some of which you, you couldn't stand or you couldn't wait to move to the next step or be promoted or move out of the loading dock into a, a, you know, more of a white collar job. But you learn something at, at each one of those um, stages in life and in your career for sure. Um, as I said, I, I, I started mowing lawns because it's what I had access to, a lawnmower in my neighborhood. And so it was out of necessity, but I'll tell you, it's one of the things I still enjoy to this day. I, I, I love working outside. I have a, we have a family farm. I, I spend as much time as I can out there doing all kinds of odd jobs. Uh, and it's something that I really enjoy. It's, for me, it's kind of an escape, a mental escape from the day to day. It's something very different and something I can produce with my hands. So um, certainly hard work. And I learned the value of hard work in every step of the way when loading and unloading trucks, getting dirty, um, trucks are... They come in the wintertime, they come in the summertime, they're not air conditioned or heated, so you're dealing with the elements and, and likewise just um, being a, a, an aspect of customer service as you're bringing stock out onto the floor, learning how to interact with people in a retail environment where your attitude matters a lot. Uh, so I learned, I learned that certainly in that job. I'll tell you, when I graduated college, um, in addition to working for GE Aerospace, which became Lockheed, I, I graduated college with a lot of debt. And um, despite being an athlete, I did not have a, a scholarship at Penn State. So I graduated with a lot of debt, and I, and I um, decided to get an evening job working at Radio Shack. So I was an electrical engineer designing satellite communications payload during the day and selling resistors and capacitors in the early days of computers at night and doing the night drop, which scared the heck out of me uh, with an envelope full of cash, you know, my, my head on a swivel trying to make the night deposit with, with never falling victim to somebody who knew exactly what I was doing with that little red envelope in my hand. So um, again, the value of hard work, um, putting in the extra time, being personable, being approachable uh, with your clientele served me well, I think both in early days of engineering, working well on a team as well as, you know, in the in the retail days. And I kept it a big secret. I was kind of embarrassed that I had to have two jobs 
um, but I certainly needed to pay down debt and we wanted to get married and buy a house and everything else that everybody does. And so uh, it was a means to an end, but I, I learned something valuable, I think, at every step. Yeah, absolutely. And similarly, I mean, I don't think your experience growing up, having lived in so many different areas and cultures is unique for that age. Was there something that you took from that as well? Um, I think so. You know, my my parents were diplomats and that put us into an interesting circle of people from all over the world that were working in the individual company or countries where we lived. And so a lot of my, I, I went to the American community schools, not DOD schools. So these were kids that spoke English, basically the requirement. So you had Australian kids and Indian kids and British kids and, and, and some of the local, local children, you know, Greek kids, uh, African kids. And um, first of all, a great appreciation for the, the individual cultures and the values. And I'd get invited to birthday parties and, and religious ceremonies, the likes of which I probably never would have been exposed to had I, had I grown up here in the States. So I just gained an appreciation, I think, for the diversity of culture, for sure. Um, number two, being in, in diplomatic circles, you have to interact with a lot of adults at a young age. <laughs> learn how to be polite, learn how not to put your elbows on the table, and, and uh, how to, how to uh, get along in a, in a mixed environment with adults and children. And that's something I think that, was, that gave me uh, a unique perspective there as well. And then thirdly, uh, my father's insistence that we communicate effectively and efficiently when dealing with his colleagues overseas um, I think I think helped me immensely when when I especially when I went off to college and uh, Penn State places such a heavy emphasis on both written and oral communications and I found myself with a, a bit of an advantage there having grown up in the environment that I was in. Yeah, very cool. Thank you for sharing. It's it's very cool to see the experiences that you had uh, growing up and before you really jumped into your first professional uh, job. So thank you. Sure. So ultimately, why did you choose electrical engineering? I don't think, yeah. I don't know if we covered that already. No. Um, so as I said, uh, I always wanted to be a pilot. Um, that's all I wanted to be. And when I was in high school, the Air Force Academy came to talk to me about playing football for them. And I was ecstatic. My father was a West Pointer. And um, I, I thought that that outstanding until they learned that I was colorblind. Uh, and that, oh, that no. ended my, my pursuit of a military academy immediately. Um, so I decided if I'm not going to fly them, I'll, I'll design them. And aerospace was really my true love. I love aircraft and spacecraft. So um, when I went off to, to Penn State, one of the guidance counselors, and I regret that I don't remember her name, talked to me and said, well, unless you're 100% certain it's aerospace, you should just go general engineering division of undergraduate studies, and we'll kind of figure it out over time. And I was debating whether or not she was telling me, you're not smart enough. You're not going to make it, you know, because I did okay in my placement exams, but not fantastic. And uh, I was probably in just over the wire. And um, it gave me some time to reflect on what I really wanted to do. And two people jumped out. Dean Wilgamuth, he was the engineering dean. I, I earned a work-study position in his office doing analytics on graduates and spent some time talking to him about different degrees. And you have to remember, this was the late 80s, early 90s. It was not a fantastic economy. And his concern was, listen, there's only a couple airplane manufacturers out there, and we're not building a lot of new airplanes. So I'm worried that you're going to graduate and not have a job. What, what interests you about airplanes? And we had a good conversation about um, how, how things work. Remember, I, I took everything apart. And he asked me, what about electrical engineering or mechanical? Because those systems are in everything. They're in automobiles, they're in computers, they're in airplanes, spacecraft, it's, it's everywhere. 
I'll be honest with you. When thinking about electrical, I thought, I'm, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to make it through. It was There was just this this lore about getting a double E degree and how hard it was. That and nuclear engineering were supposed to be the hardest. I then went home for Thanksgiving, and I remember my parents had another person that ended up being my mentor over to the house, a family friend, Paul Tilson. He was actually a captain in the Navy and worked with the NRO quite a bit in the latter half of his career. And he was an electrical engineer and said, you know, you really ought to think hard about electrical. And I said, what is this? Everybody's ganging up on me here. Um, We talked a lot about it that evening. I remember sitting for a few hours at the dinner table just talking about the various types of of options you could explore. And he he really did, uh, had a fantastic role in convincing me to go for it. And um, Penn State has a floating bar, you know, uh, GPA bar. And depends on how many kids apply for each of the majors. And they say, once, once we're full, we're full. So that bar could be... 3.5, 3.5, it could be a 3.2, it could be a 3.6, we really don't know, it depends. So that was a little daunting, and um, I worked you know, worked my tail off to get my grades up and, and get in over the bar, and um, it paid off. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I was, I know I was accepted, I know I graduated. Uh, I'll just say this, um, I, I mentor college students today in a couple of universities, and particularly engineering students, and I tell them um, two things I, that, that I took away from my my college career. Number one, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And that includes everything that I'm doing today. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life is to get my electrical engineering degree. It was an absolute slugfest every single semester. It's also the most valuable thing I've ever done because it, it taught me an awful lot about the fundamentals of science and physics and how to compete and how to not do well and come back. Same thing I learned in sports, how to fail and come back the next day and try again and again and again. And 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 also just the, the value of hard work, the countless hours in the laboratory trying to get circuits to work, trying to figure out the theory, trying to get displays and circuit boards and everything to talk to one another. Um, it, I think it, it really, really paid off. So it, it was kind of that springboard moment for me um, that, that kind of launched my career. Wonderful. My sister is also um, an electrical engineer, and she probably would agree with you that it was the <laughs> hardest thing she's done, but it sounds like it. So um, okay, so you graduate Penn State and you're working during the day, you're working in the evening. How does your career progress afterwards and how do opportunities come about for you? You know, I, I, had, a, I had a couple of good experiences at Lockheed. Uh, it's, it, was a, it was a great company, a big company that had lots of training and, and um, um, rotational assignments and things like that. I, was, I applied for and was accepted into the Technology Leadership Development Program which used to be called the Edison program. So it was a, a select program where they took people they thought might have some acumen towards moving into management, but on the technology side. And inclusive of that was uh, earning my, um, my master's degree. And I chose uh, engineering management with a focus in systems engineering at George Washington University, which I had to quit my job at Radio Shack, but that was probably a good <laughs> thing. Um, my secret job. And... Um, <laughs> Um, got my master's degree in systems engineering, and that, that's really where I gained a perspective that I did not have in my undergrad, which is the system of systems. It's taught me a lot about business as well. You can't focus on individual metrics or an individual subsystem. You have to look at the big picture when you're making changes at a lower level. And I really learned that in, in my systems engineering program, and I've taken a lot of those lessons into the business world. It's also the first time that I took an accounting class, which is a mistake. I should have known accounting. <laughs> before starting my business career because I thought accounting was math. It's not. It's math policy. And 
that really gave me a, a good foundation for the financials, which I used later in my career uh, when I eventually moved into some of the more management-centric roles. So what ultimately, I know this is a loaded question, but what led you to Arcfield? I was at a bit of an inflection point in my career. I had just sold and integrated a previous business into a large national security contractor. And I really wanted to return to the private equity world where I could partner with investors to identify, acquire, and build the next great technology differentiated solutions company. And I, and I really believe in that private equity model that develops a long-term, you know, five, seven, 10 year strategy and makes very planned investments uh, to improve mission effectivity, to attract and hire some of the greatest people in the industry. And over a long period of time, uh, return a, a meaningful value to the original investment group. Uh, it's just a model that I, I've come to understand and appreciate much more so later in my career. So when I began my conversations with Veritas, our current owners, which is a private equity firm based in New York, we talked about this piece of business that is now Arcfield that was uh, going to be carved out of a larger company and set up as a uh, purpose-built company to develop solutions for the near-peer threat, specifically in the area of space and hypersonic missiles and, and defensive cyber technologies. And those in particular are, are very relevant when contemplating what solutions uh, need to be provided for the future missions that are combating that near-peer threat. So through the course of the conversations, I became very enamored with the investment team, the prospect of being a part of a hand-picked, high-caliber leadership team, and joining the missions that were in Arcfield, some of which are 50 and 60 years old, uh, and uh, inheriting that, that legacy and being able to invest alongside them and alongside the government mission partners so we can really create some novel solutions that have the ability to provide a game-changing technology-based solution set to some very important missions within the national security space. And that's, that's really what brought me to Arcfield. No looking back. Wonderful. Yeah, and there's, you've mentioned some pivots in your mm -hmm. career, even from day one, wanting to be a pilot and your interest in the aerospace industry. Um, what were those um, those notable turning points, inflection points that kind of jump-started certain opportunities that you maybe want to share? Uh, a couple of them, a uh, handful of them, actually. When I, I was very happy at Lockheed, but one of my um, technology partners on my satellite program was Bell Laboratories. And that was always like the storied place that electric, especially electrical engineers and computer scientists want to go work. But they were in New Jersey. I had no family there. I had really didn't have any interest in moving to New Jersey. But when they opened up a research center in Columbia, Maryland, which isn't too far from where I lived, I got more interested in doing R&D. I thought I wanted to be a researcher and work in a laboratory and work on innovation. So I took a chance and left when I left Lockheed to do a career change from systems engineering-centric business into a laboratory and R&D-centric business. I learned a lot about R&D and the value of failure and risk-taking and so forth. And I was doing really well there when my engineering manager came to me and said, listen, we're, um, we're going to start up a, a sales and marketing unit, and we'd like for you to be the head of our technical sales in optical networking with a government, small portion of the business. And I never 
envisioned being in sales or marketing. So I had a lot to learn. It was actually one of my brother-in-laws who was in sales who said, I think you, you'll be great at it. You ought to give it a shot. And if you have aspirations of being a business leader someday, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot of valuable lessons once you, quote unquote, carry a bag, right? And I did. And I, I, I jumped into sales. I learned a lot. I had an opportunity to join the commercial side of Lucent, the CLEC business, selling into co- competitive local exchange carriers. And it was my only stint in commercial. The rest of my time, I'd been in GovCon the entire time. But I learned the faster pace of play, frankly, in the commercial environment. A lot of risk-taking, a lot of good behavior, a lot of bad behavior. Not as many rules and regulations on that side. So perhaps that leads to some of the, the you know, flexibility, I'll say. Um, but then 9-11 happened. And that, um, like many people in our industry, that was kind of a calling to me. i too old to put on a helmet and pick up a rifle, but not too old to be part of the solution. So um, I decided to come back to GovCon, and that's what led me uh, back into the government side of Lucent and back to LGS. So that was a pretty pivotal moment. I'll say that when I mentioned we had we were uh, Lucent merged with Alcatel, a foreign company, we had to create a government subsidiary. And the, the president of Bell Laboratories, Jung Kim, came to me and asked if I would lead the technical and security discussions for the company through a process called CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. I learned a lot about law. I learned a lot about the Commerce Department, regulatory compliance, creating subsidiaries, having to build a management team. So we had to take my business that I was a part of and create a separate company, building their IT systems, HR, finance, branding, marketing, everything that we did not have because we were part of a large company we had to create. And if you think about what we just went through with Arcfield the first year, this, it's the exact same thing. Building out a finance team, an HR team, you know, an operations team, marketing, building a brand, promoting that brand internally, making sure our customers know who we are. So um, I learned a lot out of necessity when my then boss asked me to lead a process which I was completely unfamiliar with, uh, but, it, but it helped me a lot um, in developing some of the business acumen that I needed to take on a challenge like Arcfield, taking a really powerful set of capabilities and building a company with those. Yeah. How do you work through these career work-related challenges that you may have faced having entered new um, fields within the industry and and new positions and new roles? Um, How do you personally take on those challenges? Uh, I fake confidence until I'm, (laughs) until I know what the heck I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a bit of the fake it before you make it. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to have a lot of courage and I'm not, I'm, so I'm not going to claim to be the most courageous person in the world. Um, I think I surround myself with people who help me, encourage me, uh, let me vent at times, because uh, I never want to do that at work. Um, I want to demonstrate that I've got uh, a command of what I'm doing, dedicate myself towards learning uh, as much as I can. I, every new assignment I've taken, there's always been a fair amount of unknowns for me, either the, the business rhythm the uh, vernacular, customer intricacies, um, personalities of individuals. So taking, allowing myself the time to, to learn all of those aspects of the job. I've developed three main rules that I share with everybody that I work with, and I'll share them with you. Uh, and it came through experience of both observing my own failures, being honest with myself about what I did and why it didn't work, as well as mimicking people around me that I felt were successful. And rule number one, there is absolutely no replacement for excellence. You have to be the best. If you want to rise, you want to get promoted, you want to be considered for that new position, 
you have to be the best. It is the most important thing. It's not the only thing, but you have to be the best. And so I always encourage people when they say, you know, how did she, how did she become the CFO? Um, you know, how, how come she's the head of, of you know, human resources? Go ask them. You'll, you'll learn a lot about their story and about their uh, abilities, but it wasn't a gift and it wasn't a mistake. They, they, they rose to those positions because they just had to outperform everybody around them. So that's number one. Number two is related to number one. You don't rise to the top at the expense of others. You have to help people along the way. I, I, I probably learned that lesson most in sports. There are always strong players and weak players and players that are perhaps in the wrong position. You have to see what the value is of everybody. You need to help them succeed. And when they're struggling, um, you can derive a lot of enjoyment and you can build a stronger team if you help them. Take the time to help them succeed. Not everybody, even myself. No, nobody's an A player every single day. We need to surround ourselves with people that are going to be helpful, They got that have your back. So rule number one, you have to be the best. Rule number two, help people along the way. And rule number three, depending on who I'm talking to, I can get a little colorful with, and that is you cannot be a jerk. Sometimes I use different words. You can't be a jerk. Um, if you're difficult to deal with, if you have attitude issues, if you don't have a positive attitude when you're trying to solve problems and you're trying to motivate a team, people will find a way to help you fail. So that's going to take away rule number two. They're not going to help you when you need their help. So um, I've seen this way too many times. Um, it's certainly not the, you know, the predominance of, of people that I've worked with, but those that, that have a poor attitude find it hard to achieve rule number one, and that's to be the best. These things are very closely related, and um, I thought I'd share those with you because um, nobody outlined them for me like that, but it's certainly something that I've learned along the way. Yeah, it seems like the experiences that you've had and you shared with us um, school earlier years and your career has kind of led the way to this uh, type of leadership. I agree. Very cool. So I have to ask, you know, you, you've mowed lawns, you've worked the loading deck at Hex, and night shifts at Radio Shack. Did you ever envision yourself as a CEO? Is that a goal that you had set for yourself early on? Never, never. And I'll tell you this, um, my program manager at Lockheed jokingly said, I, I was you know, one of the most junior people there. Um, there was a really highly functioning team and a, and a good culture. And I learned a lot from, from her and from the group that I worked with. But she jokingly said in a staff meeting one day, well, Kevin's on, on such and such a team. And of course, we'll all be working for him someday. He's going to be the CEO. And everybody got a good laugh out of that, especially me. And it seemed like people started mentioning that to me over time. It was never a goal or, or an aspiration. Um, it was actually my board of directors when I was the chief operating officer that came to me and said, look, we're, you know, our, our CEO is going to retire. We're going to enter a formal search. And we would very much appreciate you entering uh, into the search with us. And uh, to seek that position. And I had to do a lot of soul searching to decide if moving from assistant coach to head coach was really something that I wanted to do. And uh, I'll tell you just along the lines of some of your previous questions. Uh, I did that when I was 48 years old. I take that back. I was 38 years old. Wow. Uh, and, <laughs> That's a decade difference. <laughs> uh huh. And um, it was nerve wracking. I didn't know if 60 year old, PhDs were going to listen to a 38-year-old CEO. It was, uh, it was a real challenge for me. And um, I probably spent too much time worrying about what other people thought about me at that time. 
uh, instead of just focusing on rules number one, two, and three, right? Just be the best at what you're doing, help people along the way and be friendly. Any advice that you would give others perhaps in your position when you were at 38 or aspiring uh, young adults in the GovCon industry looking to perhaps make it to where you are someday? Um, I can't can't emphasize my three rules enough. I share it with new employees all the time. Um, You know, I I would say you have to follow where your heart and your brain take you. I think what helped lead me to where I am today is just a natural um, inquiring uh, mind that wanted to figure out how things work, why things succeeded or failed along the way. I found a way to develop courage. Uh, I would encourage people to do that. Push yourself. Step outside your comfort zone from time to time. As an engineer, that is not what we do. I always say scientists will tell you what the art of the possible is. You know, the the, the liberal arts major like my wife will tell you how wonderful it is on the other side. And an engineer will tell you the 10 ways that that thing you're talking about could possibly kill you. We tend to be pessimistic and a little bit fatalistic. So I needed encouragement along the way, and I needed people that were going to help me succeed and be okay with failure. Um, nobody tells an engineer, go ahead and build a bridge, and it's fine if it fails. It's not, it's not okay if it fails. It's not okay if the airplane fails. So when you get into the business world, being okay with trying things cautiously in a measured approach and um, accepting failure from time to time and admitting when it's you, know, you, you played a role in that. You know, we... we we succeed and fail as a team, and my role, you know, was was a part of our failure. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot of life lessons you learn along the way, but those are a handful of ones that I would I would give people in terms of advice. And I think the last the last piece of advice I'll close with is, if you don't want to be responsible for other people's actions, don't seek out a management position, because I, too often I find people want to be the team lead, they want to be the sector lead, they want to be the group lead. But when one of their team members falters or the team fails, they're quick to point the finger. And that's going to get you in violation of rule number three. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> you, you've got to have a positive attitude. You've got to encourage people. And then rule number two, you've got to help people succeed. And too often I find that somebody seeks that management position because they think, I know what the answer is and I'm smarter than everybody else and I'm going to tell them what to do. It doesn't work that way. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being so candid with us today, helping us understand a bit about your background um, and what led you to the C-suite that you currently sit in. So I appreciate it. Yep. I appreciate the interest. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humble Beginnings. Check out WashingtonExec.com to find more of our podcasts and profiles on executives. See you next time.